0: i'm daniel chacon welcome to words on a wire today my guest is going to be maceo montoya fiction writer essayist and visual artist we're going to talk about his newest novel called preparatory notes for future masterpieces on the back cover there is a blurb by our own timsey hernandez and he says that this novel is a compelling fun and intriguing read for thinkers cultural warriors, and lovers of great literature alike. Maceo Montoya has been on the show before as an artist, as a writer. He is uh, author of The Scoundrel and the Optimist, The Deportation of Wapabarasa*, and You Must Fight Them. Maceo Montoya, welcome back again to Words on a Wire.
1: Words on a wire. wire, wire. Words on a wire. 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 Wire.
0: I'm talking to Maceo Montoya for the, what is this, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time? (laughs) I thought I lost track.
1: (laughs) It might be. I I think our first time was when I did one of the, like I I read a piece on air and that was when, you know, uh, Ben Sines, you co-hosting with him, it was like 2011 maybe.
0: Yeah, we used to have this thing called Poetic License where you turn over the mic to a writer for five minutes or say whatever they want. That's right. We've we've had you on for many books and this is the latest book we're going to talk about today for preparatory notes for future masterpieces, a novel. And if you, um, we're recording this via zoom, of course, obviously the audio will be what airs locally. Um, but, uh, if you could see my video, you'll see that I have Montoya stuff all over the place (laughs) that, uh, that painting right there with uh, 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 an image of Abraham Lincoln and this quote that subverts everything we thought about Abraham Lincoln—it's—it's it's one of your father's works.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, one of his calendar series. I can see the dates on the on the the, the, the days of the month below it.
0: Yeah, 1985. And uh, and then on uh, here, I got a copy of uh, Andres Montoya's posthumous book of poems. In, uh, the jury of trees and so now i i i have you and i was thinking well don't don't try to always relate maceo with his family because you have accomplished so much but i i couldn't help doing it i couldn't help doing it how do you feel about what people always say hey aren't you the son of maceo montoya or the or the
1: brother of andres montoya uh yeah i've never had an issue with it i've always just felt you know, just really proud and lucky to be um, right. from the family that I'm, that I'm part of. And, you know, my creative gifts, um, uh, you know, come from them and, and their influence. And, and uh, I never saw it as a burden. I've always seen it as a, you know, as only a blessing. And, um, you know, my, my dad, uh, I think some point in my mid twenties, uh, cause he was very hard on me growing up um, and hard on me kind of from a you know, a a pedagogical standpoint, right? right? right. Like he, the lessons and the discipline and, and, you know, very guided me very, very clearly. And then at some point in my mid twenties, he, he let go. And I don't know if that was because of where he was at in life. Um, uh, because I never got the sense that he let go with my elder brothers, right. He was still very hard, um, on them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, maybe I'm because I'm the youngest, uh, but whatever it was, he just, he just kind of trusted me to go in my own direction. And so I was able to, uh, again, um, kind of carry that legacy forward, but, but pursue my own path and, and not feel like, uh, it was being judged or questioned or questioned in any way.
0: Well, you know, I've always known your dad to be a very wise man. I mean, I don't know him very well, but I know him well enough to know some of the decisions that he's made in his life and some of the things he taught you and taught Andres. As you know, Andres and I knew each other. We went to school together and we're close friends. And uh, it sounds like it was a good choice on his part because here you are. I'm not going to, I want to ask your age, but I'm not going to. I'm sorry, I'm 40. Okay, good, good. I was going to ask your age. Uh, i was just going to do it in a roundabout sort of way. But uh, here you are, 40, and you've been uh, a professor now uh, at our one institution, UC uh, Davis. Um, you are uh, an associate professor. Now you're going up for full professor. You have at least six books of fiction um, that I know of. Well, one, actually, one's nonfiction, which is the... Uh, uh, the, um, what is it? Beginner's guide to
1: Chicano literature. Yeah. the Chicano movement for beginners. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I, and I got a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> I picked up a copy of it and I love what you're doing there, but yeah, you, you've, you've, uh, you've accomplished quite a bit at 40 years old. There's not very many full professors at 40 years old. And one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, in, from my perspective, you come out with a book a year, maybe it isn't quite that, uh, maybe it is, but from my perspective, I just want to know about your—not uh, so much your work ethic, but your work habits. What is a typical workday like for you?
1: Well, you know, it's—it—it it, it hasn't been a book a year. It's—it's it's been, um, you know, it, it had been almost five years since. Chicano Movement for Beginners came out, and then publishing um, preparatory notes for future masterpieces. Um, in between, I had two collaborations um, where I contributed bodies of of, of artwork. Uh, one with David Campos, the other for a translation of the the Mexican poet um, Mario Santiago Papasquiaro. Um, so those those came in between, um, but you know, I I feel like I'm always working on a project, and even if if it um uh, you know, it doesn't have much success or I send it out and I get a whole bunch of rejections. Um, I continue working on it at the same time that I'm working on, on other projects. And so I think that I've, I've gotten pretty good at, at juggling works um, and moving in between um, different mediums. I think that definitely helps um, whether I'm working on a novel or I'm working on, I've attempted kind of these screenplays and the small film projects um, or working in the, in the studio. And so I think each of these different creative outlets gives me um, uh, enough of a breather so that when I return to the novel, um, I, I don't feel like I've, um, you know, I have to kind of like start from scratch. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of constantly... Uh, you know, moving between these projects and the creative juices are flowing. And and when I'm working in the studio, it can kind of give me a different perspective when I return to my desk and I'm working on a novel. But I I would say that the best habit I have, and that's when I'm working on a novel, is that I set up a word count and whether it's a thousand words or 1500 words or 2000 and I stick to it, and so I've gotten pretty confident over the years that a novel, a first draft of a novel, will take me three to four months to write, and I know I know how important it is to finish it, and so I I don't set it aside. You know, it's just like during those periods, it's very intense, um, and I get that first draft um, finished. And then, and then it, there's a long gestation period. Um, I'll let it sit for a while. I'll send it to the, the few readers that I have and that I trust. I get their feedback. I work on it some more. Um, preparatory notes uh, for future masterpieces was in that kind of that process for almost 10 years. Um, and in the meantime, I worked on other novels, I uh, worked on other projects and kept on returning to preparatory notes. And, and that kind of, influence the, the, the development and the evolution of the book so that it, it became what it needed to be, which would have been very different if I had finished it, um, you know, after that first draft and, you know, did a second and third and fourth draft and, and then, you know, maybe it was ready at that point, you know, eight or nine years ago. Um, it needed that, that, that long period of, uh, of gestation to, to become what, you know, what it is with all of its different elements.
0: You know, I, um, I have a friend, you know, Benjamin Signs, you, we mentioned him earlier before we started the, the show, how he started off with as a co-host. And Benjamin is writing these incredibly successful YA novels. Um, and his process is to, he'll spend all day if he has to, writing a perfect paragraph. A couple of days writing a perfect paragraph, but he doesn't go back. Mm. And, uh, and so by the time he's done with the first draft, which may take him two, three years, it's perfect.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> amazing. That's
0: I can't amazing. do that. I can't do that. I, I do what you do. I can get a draft of a book out in three or four months. But as excited I am, as I am about it, I don't have the, the, the other outlets that you do, and I'm starting to develop them. I guess I do actually, if I, if I rethink and say, yeah, this show is one of those other outlets. I can concentrate on the show. I can concentrate on, I do, I'm recently stepping down as department chair for the creative writing department here at the university of Texas. I could, you know, um, you know, I could say that those are, you know, those are my projects, but, but yeah, one draft and then two or three years revision. Yeah. Uh, but I really think that's a healthy thing to go from, uh, you know, you're a visual artist, you're yeah. an activist, you're a professor, and to have all these other different different projects.
1: Yeah. You know, I, as far as, I mean, it's amazing that that Benjamin um, can do that, right? And what I But I, what I find difficult to do, and, you know... The novel, I feel, is like one of the reasons why it attracts me is because it's this imperfect form, right? It's just it's so long, it's unwieldy. There's so <laughs> many, there's so many different, um, I guess, variations. So many to that and that it's a puzzle piece, and you're always trying to like move these puzzle pieces around to finally kind of get to something that resembles a finished a finished product, right? Um, and and yet it's it's it it still never feels finished. Right. There's, there's a kind of these, all these infinite amount of variations. And, and so there was, there was a time, right. Where I would just kind of just agonize over every sentence and then, you know, several drafts later remove that whole sentence. (laughs) Right. right. And so I think I've learned to be kind of less precious, um, uh, again, because I know the words can come right. Or so far they always have. Right. Um, it's also very easy to kind of remove them. And, you know, I think about the tens of thousands of words that, um, that have been cut from, from my novels, um, that are just there. Um, and yet, you know, again, it's just, it's just part of, part of my process is that is, is the, the willingness to edit and remove.
0: Right. You know, and, uh, as you get older, you're a whopping 40 years old, uh, <laughs> And as you get older and as you're committed to your to your art, you're committed to your craft, because, I mean, it's not just enough to be committed to the art. You have to be committed to the craft, the technique and to learn it and to teach it. And and what ends up happening is what we might have taken years and years to discover on a first draft when we first started now, because we have been studying craft, it just kind of comes together more organically more quickly do you find that to be the case
1: yeah i mean i guess even through a first draft or sec- i'm i'm aware of the changes that are going to be that are going to be made or that i'm ha- going to have to make and so i'm i'm kind of several steps ahead Right. Whereas I think before when I was first starting, it was, I was just like, I was completely immersed and kind of lost in that, in that first draft. Whereas now it's, um, um, I'm, I'm, you know, let me get the words out. Let me get the story out, but I'm already starting to think about those, those, those subsequent drafts as being part of, of my process. Um, and so almost a kind of thing, well, I'll handle it then, or I'll deal with this part then, um, taking notes as I go along, um, you know, preparing me for, for, the the later drafts. Yeah. And I I also found that that um you know when you talk about craft and I think it's can be difficult thing to to kind of describe like what is that, right? What what is craft? Um how do you learn it? And you know, I, I found that just from the, the 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 many novels that I've worked on, you know, most of my novels have not found their way into print. Right. They're just kind of files. <laughs> oh, on my
0: Really? Computer. Yeah. I did and, not know that. I mean, I read <laughs> one novel that you wrote, uh, that sent me a copy of that I never still has not yet to see the light of day.
1: Yeah. I no. So a,
0: I didn't know you had a graveyard of novels.
1: I, I definitely, definitely a graveyard um, <laughs> and, you know, works that I'll return to. And I'm glad they're in the graveyard. Right. They they <laughs> they, they yeah. I learned from them. Right. But, and that was that was, uh, you know, why they were worthwhile for sure. Um, but, you know, the writing wasn't there yet or the story wasn't quite right. But I guess I just found like everything slowed down. You know, I found that that, um, you know, when I'm reading a novel it kind of slows down and I can see all the pieces and the same thing when I'm writing one. And that that's like a very that's a special place to be. I feel like um, mm-hmm. that comes just with time and, and having all that experience under your belt.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like you say everything slows down because the, one of the metaphors that I try to sometimes explain to my students, mostly undergraduates who especially talented undergraduates who resist craft. You know, Andres was that way. Andres Montoya was that way. He resisted craft when he was in creative writing programs and departments. And he called it, even though he would called it cracker craft. I don't want to learn that stuff. I don't want to, I don't need to learn that craft. But, uh, um, you know, what I tell my students that resisted, I say, well, you know, craft is like when you study Kung Fu, a very formal ancient uh, approach to Kung Fu. What you spend a lot of time you're uh, doing in the studio is forms, you know, every day, these forms where you take your arm and you move it there, you move this arm there, you go like this. And, and it's just so hard and it's so boring because all you want to do is fight. Mm -hmm. That's all you want to do. You want to learn how to fight. That's why you're, that's why you're there. And this seems ridiculous. But the more you have that embedded into your code, embedded into your muscle memory, the more likely when you're walking down the street and it's dark and then somebody there's an actual threat that you're just going to get into that form naturally without Mm -hmm. having to think about it. it's the same with craft. When you're writing that draft, you are following language. You are just, you know, you are just going with it. And all that form, all that technique, all those things that you learned just become part of the flow just a natural you know it's it's embedded in you it's in your muscle your intellectual muscle memory
1: no absolutely but you know and that being said i'm still kind of not surprised but i'm i'm like it can often be demoralizing is i i'm still capable of writing a very bad novel where i've like missed i've I've had there's so many blind spots and um you know, you send it out to readers and, and, um, you know, they point out all those blind spots and there can be this frustration. Like, why didn't I see that? Right. Like I'm, this is my, you know, 10th attempt at a novel. Why, why is it like, I'm just beginning. And, and, and I feel like that that's part of the process and excitement of following the language is, is each new novel is, is a completely new puzzle, right? That yes, you have more tools to work with, right? You have more experience that you're drawing upon, but it's still a new puzzle that needs to be figured out. And um, it doesn't come, you know, it doesn't come automatically. right? right. At, at least when you're, you know, when you're challenging yourself, right? I'm sure there's writers right. who-
0: But also you're 40 years old. And, you know, I'm teasing you about that being uh, old, but I'm I'm, I'm 58. Next month, I'm going to be 59, which is going to be the very last year of my 50s. Mm-hmm. And it's a crazy experience. When you arrive here, you'll see how crazy it is. Because you could be walking downtown past a bank and looking into those glass windows and you see an old man and it takes you a nanosecond to realize that it's you. Mm-hmm. Because you still carry you inside of you. That doesn't <laughs> change, right? But yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible experience. So I think by the time you're 59 you're gonna have learned uh, and taught craft and been exposed to many, many, many more patterns and rhythms of fiction writing and of novels. And you're gonna have been exposed to so many different other things that when you're doing the writing process, there's gonna be less of that error space. I would imagine that by the time you're in your fifties and you're writing a novel, it's probably going to turn out okay. Mm Yeah, so, you know, I mean it's all it's all a development. We're all still developing, you know. And once you stop developing, that's when you become a parody of yourself. Yeah, which you don't do. Scandal and the Optimist, your first novel. It was a good novel. Uh, it was funny, and it had a lot of elements that still exist in the work today. Uh, specifically, this preparatory notes uh, for future masterpieces. One of those being incredible humor, and the other one being very insecure characters, and another one being uh, uh, a parallel or relationship or an even, I could even say, an honoring of Latin American fiction, fiction that comes from Argentina and Mexico and, and uh, you know, from all over Latin America. You have a very Latin American type of, but you went to a new level with uh, you must fight them. You must fight them. I think is when I where I just see your your character leading. Uh, I guess in ways that maybe weren't they weren't able to lead in the first novel. Mm-hmm. And your character, do you, I, I compare your that to uh, 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 Philip Roth, his um, his his first collections and his first novels. I mean, it's very very depth of character and this one you keep going to this another to another level this is one of the most easy novels for me to read in years and I mean that in a good way yeah I mean that I didn't have to force myself to go back and finish it it's <laughs> so enjoyable and it's so easy to read and it's so pleasurable was there something different in the process? Of this one and They Must Fight You that didn't exist in Scoundrel and the Optimist and maybe even Wapper Barraza?
1: Yeah, you know, so I, I felt like Scoundrel and the Optimist was my fourth attempt at a novel, um, the first to be published. But the previous novel that I had written was like The Inheritance of Socrato Merida, and it was based on my hometown. And Socrato Merida was kind of a stand in for, for me. And it was all over the place. And I mean, there's probably 800,000 words about that novel that and half of them are gone. Right. But (laughs) it was because it was so all over the place. And I, I knew that I had lost track of where I was. The Scoundrel and the Optimist was written kind of in response And I set up like a very specific discipline um, kind of uh, uh, approach to that novel. It's like every chapter was gonna be a thousand words and it was gonna be every day I wrote those a thousand words and it progressed in that way. So it was very controlled. Uh And I also knew where it was going to, to end. And so it, it was it was an exercise and it, it was an exercise exercise that I think succeeded, but it was definitely framed by that exercise. Um, the deportation of Wapar Barasa was another. Um, I had read Roberto Bolaño's The Savage Detectives, and I loved how it was told through these multiple voices. And it was like, I want to I want to tell that I want to tell a story in that way. Um, And it became its own thing, but it began as an exercise. Like I saw something and I wanted to attempt it. Whereas with preparatory notes for future masterpieces, I feel like I started to tell that story and it was like, it was so organic to who I was and the voice that was emerging that I almost wasn't ready yet. I was like, no, I'm not ready for that novel. And so I wrote a couple of chapters and then set it aside because I was so excited. But that feeling of like, is it time? Is it time for that novel? And when I returned to it, I found that the voice kind of reemerged, right? It was, that was my voice. That was the way that I wanted to tell um, a story. And so you're right the very insecure narrator, the use of humor, the absurdity, but it just felt like I was, you know, less talking and more, more singing as I, as I found my way through. And I remember reading that um, uh, Sal Bello felt that way when he wrote the adventures of Augie March, where his first two novels were these, um, you know, did well and were, you know, um, finally written, but it wasn't until the adventures of Augie March um, where it was like, I'm an American, you know, Chicago born and raised, something like that. Um, and then it just took off from there. And that was how I felt with preparatory notes for future masterpieces there was a lot that was edited out, including those first chapters that I uh, had thought was like an intro. Um, those were removed. Um, and, and so the voice of course, that I, that I was so excited about had to be distilled. It, it did have to be reined in. Um, but the, the, the feeling of being in control was, was always there.
0: Right. You know, and what's really, I think ever since, uh, um, the uh, we must fight them, and then also in this in this book, what's just really there is 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 the entire story uh, is filtered through the character's desire, through the character's yearning, through what it is that you know that that, that you know which is what matters in in I think in character based fiction, right? Uh, and so I imagine following that character's yearning, that character's perspective, that character's voice. Uh, and having the experience of, you know, learning craft and reading Salvalo and, you know, and all this is as uh, uh, it, it's only really made this your best novel yet. I think I think it's an amazing novel, uh, but but it also it shows your your development and we don't know where it's going to go yet. We don't know what Maceo is going to be writing in 10 years, but it's exciting to see where, you know, what direction it's going. Do you know where Maceo's novels are going to be in 10 years?
1: No, I don't. Um, I, yeah. again, I guess it goes back to, like, every new novel is, like, a new project, right? And so I'm not, like, thinking, oh preparatory notes for future masterpieces was, was this right experimental with the use of footnotes and this commentary on, on the Latinx and Chicanx canon. Um, it, the, the illustrations that kind of weave throughout the, the, the book, do I now need, is that going to be my thing? Um, I don't feel that pressure. I feel like I, and I've, you know, I've written other novels. Um, I have two drafts that I'm, that I'm working on and those feel, they feel very different. Um, uh, one of them, you know, almost, felt at times was like, was, was humorless and just like a drag to write. Um, but it's a good story and it's a story that I want to tell and I feel challenged by it. And so I, I have to follow that. Um, even though I don't think that at any point I felt like it was singing in the same way that those first drafts of preparatory notes for future masterpieces was, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, i I think, many writers are but hyper aware of the traditions in which i'm working the writers who i admire and want to um attempt right i want to attempt to write a book like that mm-hmm. um and that's where preparatory notes for future masterpieces kind of emerge from i I've always loved, um, these books that kind of tackle history and their characters are at the center of this history and that, in, you know, involve humor. So, mm-hmm. um, Gunther Grass's Tin Drum had a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh Salman Rushdie, Rushdie's Midnight Children, um, I've always loved, uh, you know, a book that had a huge, um, impact on me was Gar- Garcia Marquez's Hundred uh, Years of Solitude. And so Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces was my attempt to kind of do a Chicano version of these historical novels. But as you pointed out, right, it, it's filtered through the lens of this character, the narrator. And as much as I wanted him to engage with Chicano history, all he was focused on was his preparatory notes to, you know, create the artistic masterpieces that he thought was his, his destiny. And so, yes, he runs into Reyes Lopez Tijerina, the Chicano movement uh, land rights leader, to runs into Oscars at Acosta. But you know, it's almost and, and, he, and he kills him, doesn't he? And he kills him, right? He's that the mystery is solved. He's the one who killed Oscar Zeta yeah, that That was um, good. Yeah. But you know, he he um, he wanted to do his own thing. He was focused on on himself and and his development and All his right. process. You know, almost to uh, you know a, a selfish extent. Um, and I had to I had to follow that. I had to honor what my I guess my character, where, where, the direction that he was taking.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, can you uh just summarize the book for us? Just talk a little bit about uh you know the character and the and, and the story. And um yeah, there's some allusion uh in the text that it's um uh a buildings roman, which it very much, you know, in many ways is, but talk a little bit about the the, the story.
1: Yeah. So it, uh, the narrator is a young Mexican-American growing up in like the, in remote mountains of New Mexico and his father owns property and it kind of creates this like distance between him and everyone else, right? He, he has this uh, sense of entitlement and privilege and, and uh, he this, these different markers in his life have allowed him to believe that he's more than just. This kid from the backwoods of of right. New Mexico, um, he has this great desire to be an artist, um, and he comes across this book in the the library that he steals about the great painters, the great French painters, and so he's a he, very much attracted to Gustave Corbet, who was also a landowner's son. And so he has this dream of becoming an artist and going to Paris. And and yet over and over, he's reminded that he's just this Mexican-American kid from New Mexico, and he Mm -hmm. couldn't be further from his dream of becoming an artist and making his way to Paris. His one attempt to escape New Mexico was um, he and his friend Enrique make their way to Los Angeles. Um, He suffers from epileptic fits, and um, he He it's kind of hinted that he's the one who started the Zoot Suit Riots um, (laughs) uh, that happened in 1943, Um, and so he after that he returns to New Mexico, and it's just about um, over and over his his thwarted attempts to become um, become an artist and. You know, the first drafts where the illustrations weren't included, you could almost forget that he was Mexican-American. He talked about it so little. He didn't have a racialized sense of himself. Other than that, he was kind of better than others. right? He (laughs) wanted to distance himself um, because they didn't see the world in in his way. Um, But it was important for me to include those illustrations because I was drawing a Mexican-American kid, right? A Mexican-American guy as he's moving through this world. And so I didn't want to let the reader forget that um, what were the chances of a Mexican-American becoming an artist in the 1940s and 1950s? And it's a question that I thought about a lot with yeah. the, my family, right? How my Uncle Jose Montoya, my dad Malakias. Um, how, from migrant farm workers, did they make it to becoming, you know, at the vanguard of the Chicano movement and the Chicano art renaissance? Um, it was, it was the movement. It was the Chicano movement that kind of formed them as, as artists and where they found their voice. Um, my, nar- my narrator never really quite finds that. He never finds a community. He always kind of resists um, any attempts or, or any. Um, uh, you know, any instance in which, you know, to form these kind of bonds, uh, he goes in the opposite direction um, because he's so singular, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've thought about often within the context of Chicano literature is it's often told within a community or a family. Um, But what about the outsiders and Mm -hmm. uh, those that don't fit? And, uh, and that's definitely my narrator. He's, he's in a way outside of history as much as he's a part of history. And, and, and I wanted that story to, I wanted to explore that that story and its implications. And the
0: premise, just uh, to put it in context, is that um, uh, this manuscript was found that was written by this, this uh, I guess, an uncle uh, in this case. And uh, it so well chronicled his life and some historical things that were going on, that uh, you know the the uh, the one who found it tried to get it published. And you have these two scholars. You have Lorraine and I forget the name of the other guy, but they're 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 throughout the text. There's these footnotes where they comment on the character, and it's 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 oftentimes funny, but oftentimes it's also very poignant and on you know on point that we do look at. The Chicano narrative now through, um, and necessarily through a uh, a critical lens of uh, you know a history of misogyny, a history of uh, racism, a history of all this stuff, and so it's all this 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 commentary on it, which you know, like I said, is it it, itself, but that also reminds me of the Latin American tradition that you might find in somebody like Bolano, where maybe a character discovers a text. And then a the character goes deeper into the text, and not just Bolaño, but there's a lot of different Latin American uh, uh, fiction writers that are doing this, you know, commentary on the text itself by discovering the text. Um, but I want to ask you about uh, two characters and whether or not these characters might have also had some sort of an influence on the the overall work and it's going to sound weird but one it's your fault forrest gump and ignatius from confederacy of dunces
1: yeah so i i read confederacy of dunces years ago and so i couldn't um it'd be hard for me to make the connections to that. Um, the Forrest Gump thing was kind of a joke. Uh, and it was like uh, kind of in response to a reader, one of my readers response, who was like, oh, he's kind of like a Chicano Forrest Gump. <laughs> and um, I almost didn't want that connection to be made, but I was aware of it. And it's like in, within popular culture, it's like if there's a character who repeatedly runs into history, right? Or these this historic, the novelty of them running into these historical events, um, then that's what comes to mind is Forrest Gump. But, you know, I had thought about um, uh, Berger's uh, Little Big Man, um, where that character is part mm-hmm. of all these, you know, is back Custer's last stand and, and <laughs> talks about all these significant events in, in Native American um, history. Um, and uh, but the the connection to I'm sorry, what was the other? It was uh, the. Uh, oh, uh, oh, oh, oh uh, uh, yeah. Forrest gum, Sorry. Um was kind of the joke is that when I wrote like these first drafts, I, I, I never explained who Reyes Lopez Tijerina was. I never explained who Oscar Zara Costa was. I never explained who Martin Ramirez was. I didn't explain the significance of the Zoot Suit Riots. And so, um, it was almost like, uh, Forrest Gump runs into all these characters from history and everyone knows, oh, there's, you know, the president, or there's this, oh, right. you know, famous, uh, uh, this person is part of American history. Whereas that that's kind of the frustration when Chica- talking about Chicano history <laughs> yeah. is no one knows who these people right. are, right? No one knows the significance of them. And so, um, He's running into these significant figures and uh, a reader could easily gloss over them and and not know uh, who was being who was being talked about or their significance in in this community's history. And so in that way, it's kind of uh, it's 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 forest it's It's a Forrest Gump uh, play. But but the 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 craziness of it is um We're part of a history that so few know. Right. You always are forced to kind of educate people on who these people are and the significance of them. Even other Chicanos, even other Mexican-Americans. Right. Like it's recent history. And yet my students come into my classes and I'm having to start from from square from from square one uh, other than, you know, Cesar Chavez, who people have been exposed to in high school.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point because you know having the background in the Chicano movement, especially having read your book, uh, the what is it called again? The uh, The Chicano Movement for Beginners. Chicano Movement for Beginners, which is great. Uh, It's a it's a primer of you know the entire Chicano movement. But um, yeah, I mean, I recognize them immediately and forgot to consider that not everybody's going to recognize them. But I think I tend to do that. In general, I forget that not everybody has the same reference points that I do. I live on Tonatzin Place. Isn't that beautiful? Tonatzin, right? The mother goddess, you know, like she who became in, in, in Mexican folklore, the uh, La Virgen Maria, right? Tonatzin. Yeah. I live in El Paso, Texas, where 80 to 90% of us are Mexican. And I, when I tell people the street I live on, I'll say Tonatzin. They have no idea who Tonantzin is, which surprises me, because yeah. it's such a you know a powerful reference. Like, what? You don't know who Tonantzin is? The only ones who seem to know who Tonantzin, is? Who to know who Tonantzin is are are the uh, uh, the Chicana activists. <laughs> they know uh, right yeah. away. They, oh, that's <laughs> cool. But uh, yeah, I, I forgot to consider that because there is that's the Forrest Gump element. That this character goes and, and rubs up against these, but the character is more like Ignatius from Confederacy of Dunces, because Confederacy of Dunces, Ignatius lived with his mother. He refused to get a job because he was going to write the most important philosophical book ever. And he would spend hours in his room just writing notes and arguing with other philosophers in letters they would never read Hmm. because he would never really publish, you know. And it's one of the funniest novels I've ever read. I had to read it twice. I loved it so much. And that's how I feel about this. That's kind of why I kind of compare it to that uh, more out of wow, this is on that level yeah. than, uh, you know than than you know, an actual you know identification. maybe maybe there was some sort of uh, uh, you know unconscious you know identification because when we process information, we keep the patterns and those patterns of information, those algorithms, if you want to call them, are always available to us subconsciously and even if we're not, aware of them but uh but it's really you know i think it's just to me it's it's one of the funniest novels i've read in a long time i could relate to it and i'm wondering this book how long did you shop it around before you decided to go with the university press that you went to because this book could have been at a trade press if you know had you wanted to what's the history of that why why did you choose a university press
1: Yeah. I, so I, I did, I sent it to agents and I, I, I felt like, oh, this is my novel that could, could kind of break, break through.
0: Um, Oh, it is. It is. And if they didn't recognize it, Andres used to say to me when I got a rejection, they're stupid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I don't know. I the, the response that I got was just, you know, here you have something you feel is really special um, and you expect, you know, anyone who picks it up to like, all right, this is something or or um yeah, to see its potential and and it was complete disinterest. Um, and you know it, it, that was before the illustrations. It was before the footnotes, and and so I, I don't I don't regret that experience because the the novel still needed the time to become what it needed to become, mm-hmm. and I, I I submitted it to a couple of novel prizes, and it was a finalist. Um, uh, there was a 2040 Books Prize and then the Big Moose Prize at, at Black Lawrence Press. And it was a finalist. And so that told me it was going in the right direction. But that was all before the, the illustrations came in. Um, mm-hmm. And and then the footnotes came because I, I had a feeling that. And this is part of what the novel and the footnotes talk about is we live in a moment where everything kind of needs to be explained to people that this is why this book or this story is relevant. Why this is relevant
0: creative way to
1: do that. Yeah. And this is, you know, what does this mean for the Latinx community or like, what could this teach me about the Latinx experience? And here I was writing about this outsider who, who doesn't necessarily fit in and, um, has like a entitled sense of self and can be arrogant Mm -hmm. and can be, so someone picking it up thinking, oh, um, I'm going to learn something about Chicanos. I'm going to learn something about Latino. You really would have to kind of read through the lines of the story to gather that. Um, and so the the footnotes kind of emerged out of that frustration, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I'm I'm tired of being judged by that, by the <laughs> other people's and other communities' expectations of what our literature should be. It should be just based on the writing itself and how good the writing is, not like, oh, this story is teaching me about what the immigrant experience is like, or this is teaching me what it's like to grow up in the body or this is teaching me what it's like to grow up in the Southwest. Um, those Those novels are worthwhile, and I have right. plenty of, you know, I write some of that work, too, and my friends write some of that work, and that's all important, but you know, I also want there to be works that are, that are, um, that are out there, right. Yeah, that, that have that, all that, these idiosyncrasies.
0: That, that's really interesting because I remember when I first graduated from the university of Oregon with my MFA, uh, Andres and I graduated the same year and I went back to California to take a, to, 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 uh, to take a job at a community college because I didn't have a book and you're not going to get hired at a university without a book. Um, and I started a theater company. We called it Vario Bilingual Productions. And I wrote the plays and I, you know, casted them and directed them. And the first play that we had was about, you know, four college students. Um, and I remember the community that would come, we, we got all the Latino people coming, man. They loved it. But we'd also have some people from the mainstream community that would come to get a little culture. And I remember getting a complaint the first play from a very established uh, white man in the community saying, I felt like I learned nothing about what it's like to be Chicano." Hmm. You know, the, the Chicano community loved it, but it was, yeah. and, and that was what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't remember. I, I lose track when you get my age. Yeah. Uh, but with the publishing companies shrinking the trade presses, that is not the, independent presses there's more independent presses that now than there ever have been in the history of publishing and you will never lack a publisher there will be always independent presses and university presses who will want to publish you but the trade press is shrinking 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 so much that it still seems the novels that they want to publish have to be either sure bestsellers because of the reputation of the writer or cultural representations that they understand you would think that that's not true anymore but it is because this novel should be in airports
1: (laughs) 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 well i appreciate that and yeah it's It's frustrating. And I think that, you know, we've had conversations about the publishing industry and, you know, your insight into it and you kind of having a sense of the of the landscape. And I'm grateful to I mean, both the University of New Mexico Press that published my previous works and University of Nevada Press and and, you know, they uh, they're committed to the work and appreciate the work and you're having a conversation with, with uh, you know, with editors and, and who, who, you know, are valuing your, your contribution, which seems much more meaningful than any sort of interaction that I've had with um, you know, with these New York agents. And, and that's just, that's been my, that's been my career. And I, there's some, you know, obviously there's, there's there's some frustrations um, okay. with that too because I, I want my work to have a greater reach and um, I actually went and met this was a connection through a friend um, an editor at um, uh, I think it was HarperCollins and you know it was just a, a favor to the friend and and um, it wasn't like a you know a potential to have a book published and I saw the inside of HarperCollins and. It was incredible, just like floors and floors of like editors and their books and like the the posters for the books. And and it's just like teams like working on on this, like the production of (laughs) of this literature. And (laughs) and at the time, like I knew that at Bilingual Press, it was Gary Keller. Rest in peace. He passed away this year. And Karen Van Hooft. And then, um, you know, maybe one or two other editors. Linda Thurston was the the editor of 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 the Scoundrel and the Optimist, um, and that was it. What, right.
0: what 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 press was this that you visited?
1: Um, I I I think it was Harper Collins. It may have been Random House. It was one of those. I just want to
0: stop ones. a little bit at that image you painted—a Kafka-like image. If you look at some of his novels, especially America where he gives these these descriptions of going inside of a business an office and and how it you know how it runs and it's all really mechanical i mean i saw that and it was a beautiful image uh, and and i almost want to picture even though i know it doesn't exist that you go to these different departments in this high rise in new york every you know every window having this view of uh, you know of the city and then you go into the chicano section and it's one little tiny cubicle with Diet. yeah Dieting. you know with a with a chicano power poster or a poster yeah. of frida call but like that and that's it
1: yeah well it i yeah i love that i'm glad you i'm glad you pulled that out and you know i i had um the badge like i had to be checked in mm-hmm. right to go get into the building and they take a picture of you and you like slap the the sticker on oh, your on your you know yeah. your your shirt and you go up and I, I kept the badge one it was like a horribly unflattering picture. Right. I, it was one of those pictures where you start, like I'm aging, you know, like it captured me in a certain, so that was part of it. Right. Like I'm, I'm no longer this kid, like I'm, 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 I'm aging. Um, and this is like an opportunity, like what's going to come of this opportunity. And I kept that badge kind of in this way of, you know, writers holding on to rejection letters that, you know, right. one day, you know, I'll show all these people that have rejected me and, you know, nothing came of the bad, nothing came of that experience right. other than what you say, right? Like, I know, I know what's out there. Um, and then I know the presses that, that, um, that I've worked with. And, you know, I, I guess I would prefer the presses that I've worked with, right? Oh, Even so though I, my reach has been limited, because that seems like that seems very real, right? And when what what I love about literature are, are those moments and those exchanges. Um, that's what makes me believe in literature. Is is the is the the man or woman like typing at their desk in the little, you know, the little closet office. Um, and they do it because of that, the love of the of words and the, of the, the love of yeah. of literature. And I want to be part of that.
0: That that is a beautiful thing about independent and university presses that you don't find in New York. Now, that's not to say that editors who get jobs, uh, acquisition editors who get jobs at, at, uh, at trade presses don't love literature. That's what got them into it in the first place. But if it's a particular system based on a model. Uh, they're going to have to be able to carry out that model every step of the way. And so their love of literature is going to manifest itself, you know, you know, in completely different ways. And it's going to be based on, you know, a lot of it based on profit independent. If they get excited about your work, that's what you want. You want people who get excited about your work. I remember when I, uh, I, I published this book uh, that four people bought, called Unending Rooms. And it won the, uh, the the, uh, the uh, what's it called? The uh, Hudson Prize, put out by Black Lawrence Press. And I remember having dinner with the with the editor, Diane, oh my God, uh, her name is-
1: uh, uh, Gotel.
0: Diane Gotel. Go, go, go. Yeah, and uh, she they actually invited me to New York and they put me in a hotel and took me to, to Park Slope of Brooklyn to do a reading. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. I was the first winner of the Hudson Prize, I think. But um, one of the things she said, she says, when we read your book, we had to ask ourselves, can we live with ourselves if we don't publish it? Mm. And I love that. Can yeah. we live with ourselves if we don't publish it? Right. Okay. It's like imperative. They've got to publish it. And that's what we're getting with University of Nevada Press, with the Publico Press, um, you know, with all these these independent presses. But it still is unfortunate that. Latinx representation Chiconex representation in the literary world is still based on largely on cultural images that reinforce the economic structure yeah which is profit yeah you know and yeah, uh, yeah. but if they know if they if they uh marketed this enough it would make money this could be <laughs> this could be the uh the the Chicanx diary of Wimpy kid, of the Wimpy kid. <laughs>
1: that's funny yeah well i appreciate that and and yeah it's it's out in the world and and it's also good um you know after working on it for so long to um to see it out there and to hear what readers what their responses or reactions are and and then as you know right a relief to kind of move on to to the next project right
0: right right you know, you know uh we, I wanted to ask you, you're you're an incredible visual artist. You can go to MaceoMontoya.com and see some of your, your, your paintings, a, a lot of your paintings. You've um, been commissioned to do artwork for poets and different writers. Um, uh, how, and then you have this character uh, uh, and, and this character is really funny. He wants to be a great painter. He carries around, you know, the, the, the French, what is it, what is the name of the book again? The, the, the,
1: the the great book of French painting or uh,
0: book of uh, French uh, painting. And he identifies with Corbet, Malay and Corot, all of whom have a lot of imagery of being in the fields of, you know, peasants or, you know, whatever you want to call them workers and, you know, people being in the fields, resting in the fields after a hard day work or, you know, uh, uh, um, which, you know, Whether he's conscious of it or not, identifies him with those workers that you know wanted to kill him, or he thought they wanted to kill him. Worked on his dad's farm, right, and identifies him with the Chicano movement. He's a Chicano in spite of himself. Hmm. Um, But uh, one of the really interesting things is he thinks about paintings. He thinks about it, and he writes down the image. Doesn't paint it, but he writes down the image taking these notes for a future masterpiece, which I think is a really funny idea. And I'm wondering, is this idea in any way rooted in the relationship that you have between the two different processes, the process of writing a novel and the process of bringing about a painting that, that you are inspired to, to attempt?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And I think, I don't think so. Like I feel like my process is very different from what the narrator's process, you know, would be if he actually executed his paintings, which is, you know, he for 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 me writing, yes, there's an a, there's an emotional part of it, absolutely. But because because it takes so long because it's because of just the, the nature of the process, it's 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 very intellectual as well, right? Um and and uh, that the energy that goes into it can, can feel often like I'm just stuck in my, I'm stuck in my head. Right. Whereas to go into the studio um, it's, it's almost a relief to have that release of not being stuck in my head. Right. Like I just, I follow an image and I kind of intuit my way towards what that image is is going to be or is going to become. And it doesn't start off kind of as this, this intellectual activity. I can, I can step back and start to think like, this is a series and this is what I'm thinking about. And this is what informs the, the subsequent paintings that are going to emerge. And, and I can find the language to describe it. But I would feel that for me personally, um, my work in the studio is, is kind of, is, is felt, very deeply and very physically. And then my work when I'm, I'm, you know, writing, um, is much more in my, in, in my head. Right. Um, and not to say that there aren't kind of blurring of those boundaries, uh, but that's how I've kind of learned to understand these, these different, these different outlets that, that, that I have.
0: Yeah. You know, I can't help, but think of an iconic, uh, Chicano narrative, um, uh, from, I don't know, 30 years ago maybe, Blood In, Blood Out. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's uh, this one character who is brutalized by the police and 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 becomes, you know, uh, unable to walk normally and has to carry a cane, the rest of the life. He becomes a painter, a painter who, you know, stereotypically or not, becomes a heroin addict. And there's this one scene where somebody walks into his studio and he's playing John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. And he's, <laughs> whipping, whipping the, you know, whipping the thing, you know, and, and, and that kind of for me is, a, you know, a perfect metaphor for how I perceive artists in their studio. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what the process is really like but I picture that. Uh, and, you know, and then of course, you know, I'm a writer and I write novels and I write stories. So I have my, you know, my image of that, but I'm wondering, you know, what that tells me is that a painter, like a writer Has the possibility of being surprised by what happens in their work? If they're following, when we're writing, I follow language. I try not to follow idea. I try not to follow theme. I follow language and image, and I just go into it. And with the painting, I'm wondering, you know, what are or are there the possibilities of surprises just based on the rhythm of your brush stroke?
1: Yeah no and that also makes me reflect on my own right I mean so much of what emerges on the page is also very instinctual and that's what so, can be so pleasurable about it is the surprises right that just you've pulled from your your subconscious so You're not surprised
0: your readers not going to be surprised
1: yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I mean, I think that that's where a lot of the humor comes from too. It's just like allowing the randomness, the absurdity onto the page and you never expected it. And as you said, right, the, the reader isn't going to expect it either. And to me, that's the greatest source of, of, of humor is when you, something at the end of the sentence emerges that you didn't expect at the beginning of the sentence, right? Uh, it's the um,
0: version of the, of the, almost the beginning of the sentence.
1: Yes, and yeah.
0: then it's subverted and takes on a completely different meaning that that the only neurological reaction is to laugh. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 no, ex- exactly. And so in, in the studio, yeah, I um, the surprises that are there and the accidents and and, um, you know, kind of embracing those, those accidents, um, the experiments that one has on the canvas or on the, on the, on the page as one's working through, um, a work of art, um, all of those are, are kind of what makes, makes the process, um, exciting. But, you know, I, I compare kind of what an artist does in the studio more to like what a poet does on the page, as far as you're, you're searching for something, right. You don't know what it is and you, 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 you know you add a little bit you subtract you um uh you you move it in one direction or another and you you just it is it's just this kind of you don't know what's going to emerge until you have found it and then it's there right um and i learned that through my collaborations with david campos and Lorian guerrero and and seeing how their process was on the page and how they were they're editing their work and adding and moving around language and and maybe because it's searching for this like feeling right this kind of indescribable feeling um, that, that that seems to me different from the longer kind of period of uh, or process of working through uh, a novel obviously you're you're looking for feelings but um, it becomes so much something so much more uh, uh, kind of com- complex or elaborate over the the period of you know 100 pages 150 200 pages whatever the length of a novel is.
0: Right, right. No, that's that's very well stated. I I, I think of uh, poetry and fiction and most art as yeah trying to reach something, but you're not quite sure what it is. But you just know that whatever it is, if you ever touch it, you're going to burn to pieces.
1: Hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I like that. Yeah.
0: And you keep going. You keep you keep going for it. You know. And in good poetry, as in good art. That energy is trying to bust through the language, trying to bust through, you know, the, the edge, you know, and you just know it's there, you know, it's there.
1: Yeah, and, yeah.
0: Know, sometimes it's frustrating that you're never going to reach it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're ultimately going to die and maybe you'll reach it then
1: yeah <laughs> a sobering thought and just as a as a corrective to the the image of the artist kind of like uh throwing paint on the canvas and moving I around I, out, dude. I, I, I would say that most often you would find me in my studio just staring at the canvas just, uh, you know right, right. full of anxiety <laughs> yeah that's good that's good
0: well you know i don't know um uh uh what the future of this novel is, other than I know the, the publisher loves it enough to keep it in print. And I hope a lot of people read it, uh, but um, it, it could definitely uh, uh, be made into a movie. Mm. Definitely be made into a movie and it'd be a damn good one. <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> well, I'm Daniel Chacon and I am with Maceo Montoya, author of, preparatory notes for future masterpieces a novel check it out go to dot com. maceo anything else you'd like to uh, leave us with before we say goodbye
1: no just that as you pointed out in the beginning this is my fourth or fifth time on the show and and i've just always appreciated our conversations and and your deep dive into into our literature um it's hard it's hard to get that deep dive right it's hard to find people who are really willing to kind of um engage with one's work on on this serious the serious level and so always when i have these conversations with you i'm appreciative that that you're out there as a reader and that you're you're sharing this works with your audience
0: well thank you very much for saying that and uh we'll talk to you later thank you I'm Daniel Chacon. I'd like to thank Maceo Montoya for joining me on Words on a Wire. The name of the book is Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces, a novel. And uh, please go out and buy it right now. And remember, if you're local or local, you can shop at Literarity Bookstore right here in our city. Uh, It's one of the best independent bookstores I have ever seen. And this book will be on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Talk to you later on Words on a Wire.